Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. So we have been in this series on our gospel proclamation. Uh, It's a, a part of our liturgy that we say every week where I look at you and I remind you that you are created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free. So we've been talking about what it looks like to live created, loved, rescued, forgiven, and free with that identity. And I've been telling you over and over again, I want you to get that stuck in your head. And last week we talked about living uh, forgiven. And uh, it, was, it was like a dense sermon. And um, I felt like um, in the room, I know maybe you were watching online, but in the room, uh, a lot of folks heard me and they were with me, but they didn't know exactly where to go from there. And so today we're going to do kind of a follow-up to last week. So we're still in this conversation about living into these identities. But this is kind of forgiven part two. Uh, because last week we had this conversation, and I asked these questions. I asked, just like this, if Jesus had to die to forgive us, then who killed Jesus? And was that particular death required for our forgiveness? Like, was crucifixion required Or could it have just been an accident? If Jesus had an accidental death, would that death of God mean forgiveness for us? Or did God have to be tortured for us to be forgiven? And then do we really believe that torture is a part of our forgiveness? And if Jesus had to die for God to forgive us, then was it God who killed Jesus in order to accept you and me? And are we saved by God or are we saved from God? And if Jesus was required as a payment, then is it really forgiveness at all? And if Jesus received what we deserve, do we actually all actually really believe that we all deserve to be crucified, tortured, killed? And I gave a pretty strong critique of a system of thinking called penal substitutionary atonement. And this theory says that Christ, uh, by his own sacrificial choice, was punished in the place of humans and thus satisfying the demands of justice so that God could forgive our sins. And this is a a commonly accepted theory, and I told you last week that even if that's not a phrase you've known, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, this is likely the way of thinking that you were given. And that way of thinking, it, it reaffirms a pretty narrow notion of retributive justice. It allows for good and necessary violence. It also implies that God, the Father, was petty, that he can be offended like we can be offended, and that God is unfree to love and forgive by his own volition. This understanding of reconciliation with God, it starts with God needing to pour his wrath out on something or someone. That God is all pent up with wrath based on the sins of the world. And God wanting to pour out that wrath and punishment on us. And then God accepting the substitute of Jesus on our behalf. And I shared with you the narrative that I was given as a part of this theory. That I was born a sinner without my consent that God was upset with me because of my sins, that I deserve punishment because of my sins, that Jesus was crucified on my behalf so that I wasn't punished. And now when God looks at me, he sees the sacrifice of Jesus instead of my sin. Maybe that's a narrative you've heard. And my critique primarily of this system is that mostly it's just not forgiveness because the whole system means that someone had to be paid. And if someone is paying for something. It is not forgiveness. Forgiveness never requires a payment. Forgiveness is not the payment of a debt. Forgiveness is always the gracious cancellation 
of a debt. And I believe all that. I believe that Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about you. I believe that he came to change our minds about God. I believe that forgiveness is more than just the appeasement of a wrathful deity. I believe that we are saved by God and not from God. I believe it. But what happened on the cross? What happened? If it wasn't a payoff, if there was not a cosmic transaction, then what happened? Because we do have these verses, like Galatians 1, grace and peace to you from God our our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. What does that mean? What happens on the cross? And so I thought today as kind of a follow-up, last week I gave a pretty strong critique, but I didn't give a lot of how to rethink about it, maybe just kind of how to unthink about it. And there are a number of orthodox, widely accepted atonement theories. And as a reminder, atonement uh, just means at one mint. You can kind of parse out the word there. It's about how we get reconciled back to God. How do we get at one with God again? And there are a few popular orthodox mainstream atonement theories, right? Penal substitutionary atonement is born out of ideas like ransom theory, where Jesus is a ransom paid by God to Satan in order to satisfy the demands of justice. So instead of God being paid, it's actually Satan being paid. Another theory where instead of God owing a debt to Satan, this is called satisfaction theory, humanity owes a debt to God. And out of those two ideas, ransom theory and satisfaction theory comes penal substitutionary atonement in the Reformation. There's also an atonement theory called Christus Victor. And classically, Christus Victor is thought of as, uh, it's widely considered to be the dominant view within the historical Christian church. So all of Christians over time have held to some version of this view, that Jesus dies in order to defeat the powers of sin and death and evil in order to free mankind. And Christus Victor, in this theory, there is no payoff to the devil. There's no payoff to God. There is no payment at all. The cross didn't pay anyone off. The cross simply sets us free from the powers of hell and sin and death and evil. I like that one. Uh, It's a lot less transactional. There's also a theory called moral influence theory. A man named Abelard was the primary proponent of moral influence theory. And according to Abelard, Jesus died as the demonstration of God's love. It's a demonstration which can change the hearts and minds of sinners. And the moral influence theory emphasizes Jesus as our teacher, our example, our founder, and our leader, and um, kind of as a result, our first martyr. So this is an example of God's love, and then that's the kind of love that we should embody. And then more recently, there's a theory called scapegoat theory. This is uh, by Rene Girard. This is considered to be a a nonviolent atonement theory that in Christ, God becomes the one who is rejected and expelled. That is, the scapegoat is not one of us who is sacrificed to appeased an angry deity. Instead, the deity himself enters into our society, becomes the scapegoat, and thereby eliminates the need for any future scapegoats. As the Son of God, Jesus subverts the scapegoating system and sacrificial system that all humanity likes to use to think about themselves. Right? God overcomes the violence of humanity by becoming the scapegoat himself. So uh, that's a lot. 
And I know these are dense and complicated, so maybe you just want to write them down and Google them later. And here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you what to think about this today. Um, so ransom theory, satisfaction theory, Christus Victor theory, moral influence theory, the scapegoat theory, you can give a Google if you're interested. But I do want to couple, point a couple things out. The smartest people who have given their entire lives, like their entire lives, to knowing and studying scripture and theology, uh, they don't agree about this stuff. There are a lot of theories. And the reason that there are so many theories and so many ideas and so many narratives is because you cannot contain the beauty and the love of the cross in a singular idea or theory. The cross is the fullest revelation of who God is. The cross is the fullest it is the biggest, it is the supreme revelation of God's love, and God's love is always unfolding, always expanding, always revealing more and more and more. And so, of course, there are more and more and more theories because there is always more and more and more to God's love. It's never just one, uh, it's never just one thing. And in fact, the more you try to systematize it, the more you try to simplify it and synthesize it, the love of God revealed on the cross gets less clear. Right? So, so as soon as you try to systematize what happens on the cross, as soon as you try to make it an equation, as soon as you try to simplify it, you start to miss the point. Because God's love is so much bigger, so much more mysterious, so much more beautiful than any singular idea, theory, equation, system. This isn't an equation. This is an act of love. You can't simplify it. As soon as you start to simplify, you may start to miss the point. You know, we, ha we have a good number of married folks in our community. In fact, Patrick, our worship director, who many of you know, uh, is getting married the first Saturday in October. Uh, you should tell him congratulations and get him a super nice gift. Uh, but if you are a married person, maybe you could think about your wedding day for a moment. This is a, a single uh, act, a moment of love in your life. I wonder if you could just think with me, what was your wedding day a legal ceremony recorded by the county? Yes, it was. But that's not what you put on the invitations, because your wedding was more than that. Was your wedding a party with all of your closest friends? Yes, but it was more than that. Was it the display of your family's love and support for you and your partner? Hopefully, yes, but it was also more than that. Was it the culmination of hard work and tears and uh, difficult conversations? Yes, but it was more than that. Was it two people promising love and fidelity for one, to one another? Yes, but also it was more than that. The act of love and one singular moment in time at a wedding, it, it cannot be described or systematized or simplified into just one thing. There is no wedding that is just an equation of one promise plus one ring equals eternal happiness. It's not just a legal agreement between families. It's an act of love. And if you try to oversimplify that act of love, you just start to miss the point. There's always more to it. And this is God's revelation of love on the cross. There is always more. You can't simplify it. There is no equation. It is love. This is why Paul calls the Christ, 
that calls the cross foolishness in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There is no easy understanding, he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we, treat, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Right? People want signs, they want, wonder, uh, uh, they want uh, wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is foolishness. There are no easy signs or no easy wisdom with this. It feels foolish at times. But Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins and Christ died for our sins. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what happened on that cross? We know it can't be easily summarized or simplified. We know it's not just one thing. There's not a singular idea that can contain it. But if you hear nothing else today, hear this. The cross is where we find God. That's why the cross is a scandal, because God dies. That is scandalous. The God of power and might, the God who's raising Lazarus from the dead, the God who is healing lepers and giving sight to the blind, that God dies. We worship a crucified God. The cross is where we find God. And when we find God, there is always, always, always more. There's more. The cross is the pinnacle of God's self-disclosure, but it's more. The cross is divine solidarity with all of human suffering throughout time, but it's more than that. The cross is the shaming of the powerful systems of human evil, yes, but it is more than that. The cross is the depth by which Christ will go to honor, serve, and love you, yes, but it is more than that. The cross is the death by which Christ dies in order to end death for everyone else, yes, but it is more than that. The cross is the abolition of war and violence, yes, but it is more than that. The cross is the supreme demonstration of the love of God, yes, but it is more than that. The cross is the refounding of the world around an axis of love, yes, but it is even more than that. The cross is the enduring model of co-suffering love that you and I are to follow, yes, but it is more than that. The cross is the eternal moment in which the sin of the world is forgiven, but it is even more than that. The cross is where God absorbs human violence and anger and hatred and transforms it into divine love. Brian Zahn says, the cross is not the appeasement of an angry and retributive God. The cross is not where Jesus saves us from God, but where Jesus reveals God as Savior. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive, but what God in Christ endures as he forgives. The cross is where the world violently sinned its sins in the body of the Son of God and where he absorbed it all, praying, Father, forgive them. The cross is both ugly and beautiful. It's as ugly as human sin and as beautiful as divine love. But in the end, love and beauty win. I know you want to know what happened on the cross. If it's not a divine equation, if there is no transaction, what happens? But it is never just one thing. There is not a singular theory or equation. No calculation can fit the mysterious and wonderful love of God. It is always unfolding, always expanding. The cross is where we find God. And every time we find God, there is more. So for you, how does your brain handle this mystery? How does your brain handle there not being one singular thing? But do, do you have to have a simple explanation for these theological concepts? Do you need that? I think what I'm trying to say is, are you okay? Are, are you willing to trust that in the mystery that there is more love and grace and healing? and not less. 
I think maybe that's where a lot of our anxiety comes from around this because we say, well, if we, if we can't put our finger on it exactly, how do I know that it's better than what I'm imagining? Right? That's the challenge of faith, that in our not knowing that we would trust that God is actually better than we currently know, that God is more loving, more gracious, more kind, more wonderful than we currently imagine God to be. Right? So are you willing to trust that the mystery of the cross reveals a God who is even more than you've previously believed. And then how could you live out this kind of expanding, unfolding way of being? Maybe as you encounter a belief or a stance or a value that is being challenged or that you are evaluating, you could ask, what don't I know about this? Right? Instead of, instead of uh, trying to evaluate, you know, what am I 100% sure of today? Where does my certainty lie? Maybe you could just start asking, what don't I know? What don't I know about these political ideas? What don't I know about this theological belief? What don't I know about parenting strategies? What don't I know about the people in my life? What don't I know about my partner? What don't I know? Is there more? And the hint is there is always more. The cross is an act of love. It's where we find God. And every time we find God, there is always more than we're expecting. And that more is always love, grace, healing, and forgiveness. God is expanding, unfolding. Of course, we cannot simplify the beauty of the cross into an equation or a singular theory. If you've spent much time reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you may find, uh, you may have found that there are dozens, even hundreds of names for God. You, you may even know some of the Hebrew versions of the names, like Yahweh or Adonai or El Shaddai or my favorite El Roy. It means the God who sees. And God's people in the Bible, they just keep giving new names to God over and over and over again. They just keep renaming God. It's kind of a peculiar thing. But every time they encounter God, they have a new way to see and understand God. They call God Lord, and then they encounter God again, and they say, yes, Lord, but there's more. God is Lord, and God is the Almighty. And then there's more. God is the God who sees. But that's not all. God is protector. And that's not all. God is advocate. And that's not all. God is provider. But that's not all. God is father. But that's not all. God is mother. And that's not all. God is love. And that's not all. God is king. But that's not it. God is the king of kings. And God is the prince of peace. And God is the suffering servant. And God is the everlasting. And God is the beginning. And God is the end. Every time God's people encounter God, they have a new way of seeing God, a new way of understanding God, a new way of expressing who God is. Because every single time they encounter God, there is more. More, more, more. There is no singular description. There is no equation. There is no metaphor that can handle all that God is. And so the Bible is the story of the unfolding mystery of God. Yes, he's the creator, but he's also the finisher in some way. And yes, he's king, but he's also Lord. And yes, he's father, but he's also mother. And over and over again, God just gets revealed a little bit more and more and more because there is always more. And all of that mystery, all of that beauty, all of that complexity, all of that love is marvelously and miraculously displayed in the cross. And so maybe just for a moment today, we could slow down 
we could pause. And instead of collectively asking, what is that? What happened? What? Why? Why did it happen? What? Why? What? Maybe for just a moment, we could just sit with the wow of it all. That there is a love we cannot comprehend. And maybe instead of seeking to explain or evaluate, we could just experience it and just let that love and grace wash over us. So why don't we take just a few seconds. Maybe you need to close your eyes and take a few deep breaths. And gather, this is my prayer for us today. Acknowledge the truth that there is more than we can see, more than we can understand, more than we can explain. And trust today that in that mystery of the cross, there is unfolding, always expanding, love, grace, and healing. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.